This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. What up, listener? We wanted to take a second to thank you for listening to this Blue Wire podcast. Be sure to show your support to this pod by subscribing and dropping a five-star review on iTunes, a follow on Spotify, or the appropriate dap for any other platform you might be listening on. And if you're enjoying this show, chances are you'll like one of our 75 other sports podcasts. Find more shows you'll love at BlueWirePods.com. Thanks again for listening, and now back to your regularly scheduled podcast. What it do, Hardwood Knox party people? I am Dan Favalli coming at you without my co-host Andy Bailey this time, but it is one of your mailbag pods that we will be dropping more regularly, two, maybe three times a week. It depends upon uh, what we're doing, but we will be pumping them out. As a result, we're going to continue to be shills for our own podcast. We are begging and pleading with you to continue rating, reviewing, subscribing to us on iTunes. You can also do the same wherever else you're getting your podcasts. Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, all those good places. If you want to be a superhero, though, go to iTunes anyway, even if you're listening to us elsewhere. Search Hardwood Knox, rate, review us. You can leave constructive criticism. We take it all to heart. Someone just wrote that we're unpolished. I'm not entirely sure what that means, but he, but they said they enjoy us as well. So we appreciate it. We do do prep work. We also like doing it off the cuff here. We apologize if it comes off as unpolished. That's just the nature of the biz. Not complaining. Again, we appreciate any and all feedback. Another thing you can do to help the podcast is follow us on YouTube. Not These mailbag podcasts will not be going up on YouTube unless there's a greater demand for them to be there, but our regular length episodes will be. YouTube.com, search Hardwood Knox, will pop up. Subscribe, like all our videos. Sometimes some special short video edits will be going up there that I make if I have the time. You'll enjoy it. You can also help the podcast by following the Blue Wire Network on Twitter, at Blue Wire Pods. I'm running the account and any engagement we get there is going to help us a ton directly with the pod. You can follow me on Twitter if you'd like, if you dare, at Dan Favale, F-A-V-A-L-E. You can follow Andy on Twitter, at Andrew D. Bailey. The show, as always, is at Hardwood Knox. Last, but certainly not least, we want to shout out today's sponsors, who you'll be hearing from post-haste, basically, but shout out to Untucket and BetOnline.ag. They're making this Hardwood Knox content possible and we really we love them we appreciate them use the promo codes that we're going to be dropping for you in a little bit and in fact it won't be a little bit because it's time for our bet online ag segment this week fast five we are going to be breaking these out for betonline.ag they're going to sponsor these segments and as they do we are going to give you this fast five particularly when it's when it's notable and it's basically going to be me going through and reacting to five news news items it'll be andy as well sometimes it'll be the two of us doing it together together 
BetOnline.ag is your online sportsbook expert. Use the promo code BLUEWIRE, all one word, for a 50% off welcome bonus. Again, that's BLUEWIRE, all one word. We want to thank them for sponsoring this Fast Five segment, which will be coming a regular thing, so this intro will be more polished. But again, shout-outs to BetOnline.ag for sponsoring Fast Five. So let's start this Fast Five. I'm going to begin with what I think you need to know. The Toronto Raptors have won 14 straight games. Absolutely, positively absurd. They are beating quality teams. They beat the Pacers after Kyle Lowry left that game with an injury. Um, They were able to win the very next night as well without him. They're dealing with Marcus Gasol, who has a hamstring injury and has not played since January 28th. Norman Powell is out with a finger injury. They lost Kawhi. They lost Danny Green over the offseason. The fact that they are number two in the Eastern Conference, 39-14, and 14, still comfortably behind the Milwaukee Bucks. I don't know if people appreciate just how absurd that is. And a lot of people have been quick to point out that, yeah, they were good with Kawhi last year. And look, I get it, but you also lost Danny Green as a part of that. And I'm just going to go through some perspective about their lineups. If you go to their seventh most used lineup last season, one, Kawhi Leonard was in six of their seven most used lineups by possessions played per cleaning the glass last year. If you go to their seventh most used lineup, it was Kyle Lowry, Fred Van Fleet, Kawhi Leonard, Pascal Siakam, and Serge Ibaka. If you do that this year, we are not done with the entire season. But again, this is just for perspective of what they're sort of dealing with. Their seventh most used lineup right now is Fred Van Fleet, Norman Powell, Pascal Siakam, Rondé Hollis-Jefferson, and Marcus Gasol. That's a big difference. And so there, there is a talent deficit compared to last year. And it's particularly when you look at the time that Siakam has missed, that Gasol has missed, uh, that uh, I already said Pascal Siakam, Kyle Lowry has missed, excuse me, I'm stuttering through there. This is a big deal. And they're just, they're finding ways to win games. They are scrappy on defense. It's fun watching them. Fred Van Fleet is going to get paid over the offseason. It's also important to note that Serge Ibaka shooting 10 of 17 in the clutch this year, including three of five from three. Absolutely ridiculous. I thought it'd be a good idea. Let's check in with Victor Oladipo five games into his return. Uh, that is that is item number two. The raw numbers do not look great. He has, through his five appearances, he's averaging 23.8 minutes per game, 10.6 points, 2.6 assists, 38.3 true shooting. The Pacers are getting absolutely trucked when he's on the floor. They have a minus 13.1 net rating per 100 possessions. When you watch him, though, of the two, I think, two and a half games about that I've seen with him and then trying to watch some tape before this podcast, it seems like he's moving really well uh, defensively. And he's taking a ton more of his shots from three, more than half of them right now. That That's certainly an adjustment. He's only shooting 21.2% from three at the moment. He's getting to the rim, not as often as he did last year, but more often than I thought he would coming back from this quad injury. He's he's at about, you know, 20% of his shots at the rim, 19% around there compared to 22.6 last year. Uh, he has cut down a ton on his long twos. Like I said, more than half his shots are coming from three. It's something to monitor, but I think it's good to see that there have been moments where he's attacking. I, you know I'm going to like his shot profile, and I think he's talented enough to see more of those three balls certainly fall. And the fact that it just doesn't look like he's at least – particularly in that Toronto game through spurts. Um, it just did not look like he was overmatched on, on the defensive end for these long stretches. And that might be the, the most important thing um, sort of coming back. 
from this. Our third news item, we have to talk about the Blazers losing to the Jazz on Friday night. I did not see it live. I, I went to bed after the first half. I live on the East Coast. I make no apologies for that. Friday night's a, a night where I can try to get a be- to bed, usually at a reasonable hour. Um, Lillard, as we all know, hit what should have been a game-tying layup with 11.2 seconds remaining. Uh, there was a goaltend on Rudy Gobert. He hit it after it was off the glass, but it was never called, and they couldn't challenge it because it wasn't called. And Damian Lillard was pissed off afterwards. He had to be restrained after the game. He said, quote, this is per Yahoo Sports, we get to the last play of the game and they miss an easy call. And then they tell us that it's an easy no call. Like that was obviously not a goaltend. It cost us a fucking game, man. He also said after the NBA released the report on Twitter uh, that there should have been a goaltend called. He quote tweeted it with, "We we don't want to hear that shit. Clearly frustrated, has all the reason in the world to be. There might have also been a foul on, on Royce O'Neal there. Uh, I believe it was Royce O'Neal on the behind the play. Either way, it caused that miscall cost him a game-tying layup. I go back and forth on it because I'm of the mind that there are 47-plus other minutes being played in the game, and so no outcome is truly determined by one call. At the same time, it's fair to criticize the refs because that this, these are the moments when they need to get those calls right. And this is just... A particularly weighty call because or no call I should say because the Blazers are fighting for a playoff spot they're three losses behind the Memphis Grizzlies if if they win that game and I'm not saying they necessarily would have but if they win that game they're they're only two losses behind the Memphis Grizzlies that's something that could make a difference at the end of the year and something that uh, they'll they'll keep coming back to and, the, and Lillard I think justifiably livid after the game where he needed uh, to be restrained by uh, director of security uh, official Rick Riley, I believe it was, when he was trying to approach the referee. And the fact that the referees described it as it wasn't even close to being a goaltend, that's really going to contribute to how angry he was. And so it's not, it's something to watch in the scheme of the the Blazers' playoff push. We also need to keep an eye on the Jazz, who have just not looked too great. And to see Portland was playing the second end of a backup back-to-back to almost maybe steal that game in Utah would have been absolutely huge for them. Just watching the replay, though, a clear goaltend, goaltend and the fact that it was a, a no call there, it really is inexcusable. And, and Andy, the, the jazz super fan of this podcast, I think he can agree to some extent. Maybe he'll be a little blinded by by his fandom. We talked about it a little bit afterwards. It, it, was, a, it was a no call. Uh, but again, there were 47 other minutes in the game. But the flip side to that once more is that's when the referees need to get these calls right is inside that final minute inside crunch time when so many things are happening on a positive note, though, since the Blazers 13 point loss to OKC on January 18th, which is a span of nine games, Damian Lillard is averaging 42.4 points per game on 53% shooting from three, and he's taking 12.8 three point attempts per game. He's been lights out in the clutch during that time, and he has a 69.5 true shooting just overall through that stretch. Uh, they are 6-3 and three over it, potentially could have been 7-2 and two, uh, if it wasn't for that no call. He's just been molten, volcanic. It's, it's absolutely in- incredible to watch. The fourth thing we have on our list, Kevin Durant once again explained why he chose to sign with the Warriors in 2016. Uh, this was what he told Matt Barnes and Steven Jackson on all the smoke podcast, 
Quote, in OKC, I played with a lot of athletes. I didn't play with a lot of skill guys, not like shooters and, and ball handlers. So after a while, my game started to grow, and I was like, I need to change. This was before the 2015-2016 season even started. I was tired of being the only guy who could make threes, make jump shots, and consistently make them. Look, I could understand that frustration, and I think Kevin Durant, this is more, if you listen to it, that clip, this was just more of a conversation, so he wasn't exactly having to justify it to typical media members we don't he doesn't need to justify it anymore though in my opinion and his story just seems like it keeps changing it's he wanted to be a part of that bond of the, the hamptons five going out there uh, to get him uh, he just he left it just it seems like his response changes every time and i was going through just past articles of some of the reasons he gave and there have been at least between three and five uh, underlying reasons that he's uh, said or used to justify leaving the thunder and they could all be true but it's it's just funny that it seems like his story can, continues to change there, and I hope it at some point he can stop being asked about it and we can move past it. He won two rings while he was there. It didn't end in the cleanest of fashion, but it, that was a great team. It was his right to leave in free agency. I don't think it makes him any less of a basketball player, and the people who do, I really think it's it's out of control. Also, that's definitely has to be shade at Russell Westbrook. I don't that that it's just too pointed. I I wasn't. I played with a lot of athletes. I didn't play with a lot of skill guys, not like shooters and ball handlers. So, yeah. The final note we have here in the Fast Five. Just want to note that Marvin Williams was bought out by the Hornets and signed with the Bucks. What a damn flex by Giannis Antetokounmpo. He's not the sole reason, but the fact that the Bucks get a guy like this when I think he could, Marvin Williams could have helped the Clippers. Some people thought he could have helped the Lakers. I wasn't too high on that. The Rockets, I know they've been leaning into small ball. We'll talk about that in a second. But that would have been a team where he would have fit Boston as well, reunite with Kemba Walker there. The fact that he goes to the Bucks one, shows how dangerous they are. We're actually going to talk about them in a little bit. On pace for 71 victories, just absolutely absurd. But he's also a great fit there. And when they go smaller now, where if he's going to take up those Robin Lopez minutes, um, maybe even eat into a little bit of playing time with Brooke Lopez because you want Giannis to to be up front where it's him and Marvin Williams and maybe they just determine who's the five on a possession-by-possession basis, that could really work. And there's been, from the games that I've seen Williams in this year, it seems like there's been some slippage with his defensive mobility in the half court. But he was he's more switchable than... Uh, when you look at him, then, then he just looks. And the fact that he can space the floor with the three ball, I think this is going to be a really good addition for the Bucks. I know with these buyouts, they don't typically typically become these swing pieces, but I think there's a real chance that Marvin Williams can. That does it. There you have it. The betonline.ag fast five of the week. Remember to use promo code BLUEWIRE, all one word, for your 50% welcome bonus at betonline.ag. Fast five was fun. The movie too, but also just what we we did. But now it's really time to get into some mailbag questions. Just as a brief refresher, we appreciate all your solicitations. We're going to try to get as many uh, to as many as we can through throughout the week. And the goal is to probably go through between seven and ten um, per episode because we don't want these to be super long episodes. I think Andy's first one was like forty five minutes, a re- almost a regular length episode. We want them to be shorter than that. So we're just going to hop right into it today. Our first question comes from. Caden, Twitter handle at Echo18934741. How has Devin Booker's season compared to other similar guards this season and past seasons? So I didn't look specifically at guards for this question because I feel like it does Devin Booker a disservice, and I'm not someone who gets bogged down in positional designations 
anyway, even if it's just a matter of backcourt, frontcourt. But let's put this into context, strictly this season. Here are the players who are averaging, like Devin Booker, more than 25 points and six assists per 75 possessions with a true shooting percentage above 60. And again, this list is absolutely wild. Devin Booker, Damian Lillard, James Harden, and Giannis Antetokounmpo. That's it. Devin Booker has the highest true shooting percentage of that bunch at 63.1. That is an absolutely nutso true shooting percentage. And let's look at just his scoring. And when you just lower the threshold to 20 points per 75 possessions, there are 53 players that are clearing that many points per 75 possessions. Devin Booker is third in true shooting percentage with his 63.1 mark. The players in front of him, Jonas Valanciunas and Christian Wood. So he has the highest non-shooting, highest true shooting percentage among non-bigs, averaging at least 20 points per 100 possessions. And that's a huge sample that we're, that we're looking at. It's, you know, if we're looking at just wings or non-bigs, yes, that'll, that'll diminish. But the fact that he's third in this 53-player sample is absolutely wild. And he's having a fantastic season. In terms of how it compares historically, I'm not a super fan of doing these types of exercises anymore. I really used to be, but just given how many threes uh, are, are shot, it's even going for the the per possession stats. It can be skewed a little bit, but I do think it's interesting to see, well, then what current players have, have ever sort of matched this throughout history. So take this with the grain of salt that it is where a guy like, just use Michael Jordan as an example. Like He didn't play the brand of basketball that's being played right now, and I know Devin Booker isn't exactly chucking threes like, like crazy either, so maybe that's a reason to get it. Um, to be more impressed with this, but here we go. Here's everyone who has matched Devin Booker's points, 26.3, and assists, 6.2, per 75 possessions with a true shooting percentage of 63 or higher. So there, anyone that's matched Devin Booker's splits per 75 possessions or better throughout NBA history. Stephen Curry, twice. LeBron James, twice. And Giannis Antetokounmpo did it last season. And the most, the, the, as far back as this goes, yes, it's a search throughout uh, 1973 and on. LeBron James is the earliest player to have done it, 2012-2013. He did it again in 13-14. Steph did it in 14-15, and then in 15-16. Giannis did it last season, and now Devin Booker's doing it now. He's just having an absolutely mind-melting season. When we talk about all-star snubs, sometimes it's difficult because you need to be able to name someone who's coming off. He's absolutely an all-star snub, and he, he should have been named. I would have put him in over Russell Westbrook. He definitely had a case over Donovan Mitchell as well, but I think Westbrook is the spot that that really threw me for a whirl uh, looking at that. Our next question comes from Frederick Brandt at Fred the Pet. His question, do you believe Trey Young is the worst defender in the NBA? I, statistically, he basically is. Uh, He ranks 499th out of 500 players in luck-adjusted, defensive, real-adjusted, plus-minus. So, L-A-D-A-R-P-M. That's terrible. Miles Bridges is dead last for anyone who cares. Trey Young, he's not long. He's not super strong. He does need to try to provide more... Uh, resistance in the half court. I'm wondering if having Capella behind him might make the Hawks' defensive splits a little bit better, but he, he could be right up there. It, he's also playing a position where even if you're a great defender, you're you're still, if you're on the opposing team's point guard, which ideally you're not going to see him on a ton, but if you're going up against backcourt players or guys who can handle the ball or guys who can attack mismatches because of your size, 
you're just at a huge disadvantage there. I'm not complimenting his defense, but it's so hard to say whether he's definitively the worst def- defender in the NBA. But if, if we were to just use maybe tiers, he's definitely one of the 10 worst. I would almost want to expand it for most players because I don't believe Miles Bridges is the worst defender in the NBA. I don't believe he's one of the 25 worst defenders in the NBA. Uh, but for Trey Young, I think you could comfortably say that he's one of the 10 worst defenders in the NBA. Uh, this question, next question, comes from Gonzo. And, and the reason we actually didn't address it in the Fast Five with Marvin Williams and Darren Collison is because I had this question. His handle for Gonzo, at Mr. Gonzo M, is Michael K. Gilchrist a good fit for the Dallas Mavericks? Uh, MKG was brokering a buyout with the, the Charlotte Hornets, and the, the Mavericks are his rumored top suitor as I'm recording this. I struggle to see whether he's a great fit. He's a zero on offense at this point, and, and never mind the shooting. It's just he doesn't give you, over the past couple of seasons, doesn't give you much in transition, hasn't been this spectacular your spectacular cutter. Maybe you can do things where you use him as the role man if you get super weird, but then you need to surround him by a ton of shooters. He's never shown great acumen as a passer, and so will he make quick passes to the corner on, on the roll? I, I honestly don't know, and the fact that he can't pop it really makes sending him as the screener in pick and rolls maybe a little bit pointless. That said, he can be a good defender. Um, the Mavs are bleeding points around the bucket uh, since January 1st, they're 28th in opponent field goal percentage at the rim. They do have a top three three-point defense during that time, and that's that's really been a, basically the story of their whole season is that they, they've had, whether it's luck or, or not, or they've been just good, their three-point defense statistically has been pretty darn good. And just on the inside, they're more vulnerable. Christos Porzingis has missed a ton of time, and he can also be overpowered at points. Um, it certainly doesn't help that they don't have Dwight Powell anymore, but neither him or Maxi Kleber are the, the strongest guys. You look at Willie Cauley-Stein now. He's not um, some intuitive defender at all, really. So Michael K. Gilchrist, I could see him maybe guarding the bigger wings, and he's someone who you could stick on bigger guys, at least in the post. His post defense has been okay the past few seasons, so you could try it. And just to have another guy who can begin to try and cover the bigger wings in basketball, you're not going to slow Kawhi Leonard or LeBron James to a halt. But just to sort of muck them up a little bit, I'll have another body other than Dorian Finney-Smith that you feel good about putting on them. I, I, I think it's fine to make an addition like that. Our next question is going to come from Twitter user 2017 Russell Westbrook. Uh, I respect it, not, not going to lie. I'm actually not sure if this is a troll question, but I'm going to answer it anyway. Twitter handle at Kung Fu Kami. What what are Steph's isolation stats from the 2016 Finals? Now, I don't have access to this data. I will say that for the 2016 season, Steph scored 1.08 points per isolation possession. Just for context, the Charlotte Hornets were ninth in offensive rating that year, and they averaged just under 1.08 points per possession. And so having... Stephen Curry go in isolation that year was the equivalent of a comfortably top 10 offense, which is absolutely nuts. I do also remain of the mind that this this narrative, this spin, that Stephen Curry was terrible in the 2016 finals is not true. Uh, He shot 40% from three over those seven games, averaged 22.6 points, 3.7 assists. Uh, He didn't shoot his highest clip on two-pointers. He still shot 93% from the line. He did have bad games you could say that came at inopportune times you you look at uh, game five where he goes eight of 21 from the field and five of 15 from three uh, that was the game Draymond Green missed uh, 
but the fact that he came back, shoot six of 13 from three the next game, and then, yes, he's four of 14 from three, including uh, some really big misses down down the stretch, six of 19 overall. He did, he's been better, but Stephen Curry was not the sole reason the Warriors lost that series. Uh, and I feel like maybe people are reading too much into his opening game, but the fact that he can shoot the three ball the way he did, even when his shot overall, if it's a 4 of 15 night like it was in, in game one, that you could have counted on him to go three of eight, from three in that night, I I just feel like we need to get away from this. You want to make jokes? I'm totally here for it. I'm here for jokes that troll, um, that that aren't really speaking false truths. They're just mocking the mockery, essentially. But I just I don't buy into this belief that Stephen Curry was absolutely terrible during the 2016 NBA Finals. Our next question is about Nikola Jokic because I feel like we have to answer one question about Nikola Jokic per episode, but also because. Andy, who solicits these questions, has a lot of Jazz and Nuggets followers, so I, tr- I try to mix it up. We got plenty of responses, but this I found this Jokic question fascinating. It's from Ray Martinelli, handle at RxMart2. Is Jokic a top five player? Now, in a regular season, a normal season, we are in the regular season, my gut would say no, but that he's super close and might even be that top five player. I would put KD and Steph ahead of him if they were healthy, but they're not. So this year, let's look at it this year. There's LeBron, Giannis, and Kawhi as the players that I would have definitively in front of him. And again, we're looking at just this year. James Harden's slump, I really think can hurt him in this conversation, but I would probably put him ahead of Jokic as well. So that's four. You have to consider Anthony Davis in this. You could probably give Joel Embiid some love after that. Damian Lillard, specifically this year, I think has a case. Jokic's, to me, is probably stronger than all of theirs, those other four alternatives after Harden. So the AD, Joel Embiid, Damian Lillard, the other three alternatives, excuse me. I'm not Him and AD might be close, but the fact that the Lakers have been so bad when Anthony Davis plays without LeBron James on the floor, I do think that's something to consider, especially because, you know, we're not talking about a point guard versus a big. This is big versus big. And so what Jokic can do can more effectively anchor an offense when he's running solo or as the focal point than it can with Anthony Davis. I'm going to turn this into, though, the conversation about Jokic's MVP eligibility. I do think right now I'd probably have him in the top five. I don't know. if He definitely wouldn't be in my top two. That would belong to Giannis and LeBron James. I don't know if James Harden's played poorly enough for long enough to fall off that third spot. You have Luka Doncic could be right there. Damian Lillard belongs in there as well. I think ultimately Jokic belongs in top in the top five. But th- his case was gaining some steam uh, a, f- a few days ago because the Nuggets, they've been battling some injuries. They've been finding ways to win games anyway. And, and he's been spectacular. And, and he really has since... Denver's 37-point win against the New York Knicks on December 5th, in which Nikola Jokic didn't really do—he played 30 minutes, but he didn't really do much. So that's why I'm using that as sort of the, the separation. He's played 34 games, averaging 23.8 points, 10.4 rebounds, 7.1 assists, 1.1 steals, slashing 54.6, 38.2, and then 81.4 from the foul line. That's great. What I have trouble overlooking is that he was not— at this level, or really anywhere close to it, for almost a quarter of the season. So before that stretch, through December 5th, a span of 19 games, which is very close to a quarter of the season, uh, Jokic was averaging 14.9 points, 10.1 rebounds, 6.2 assists, 1.2 steals, slashing 45.1, 22.2% shooting from deep, and 77.6% from the foul line. He also wasn't getting to the foul line very often during that stretch. 
wire-to-wire stuff matters. And that's why I don't think there's even a case for anyone other than Giannis Antetokounmpo or LeBron James right now. I just have those as the the top two guys. James Harden was there, Luka Doncic was there, but then you have the, the injury to Doncic and the Mavs have fallen off a little bit, also because of the injury to Porzingis, I'm sure factors into that as well. And so you look at that, just more, they've been great, both Harden and Doncic for most of the season, but you have to, I'm looking at wire to wire. This is a full season award and Jokic has not been uh, the most valuable player in basketball for the entire season. It's just that simple to me. Do I think he belongs in the peripheral discussion behind James, but behind Giannis Antetokounmpo? Absolutely. Do I think that he could maybe surpass Harden or Doncic in that conversation? Is he maybe already there? Is he going to finish higher than Dame? I think that's all possible and worth considering. He's not in the same tier as LeBron James and Giannis Antetokounmpo for me. And I'm not even sure LeBron is, is in Giannis's tier for me right now, too, because he's just been so dominant um, in so few minutes. It's It's unlike anything we've we've ever really seen. So Giannis is, is my MVP, but shouts to Nikola Jokic, I guess, for, for playing well. I don't, I guess. that That's a real shout. Ever see an untucked button down? They look bad. Why? Because they weren't meant to be worn that way. Thankfully, there's Untuck It, the original button-down shirt actually designed to be worn untucked. No matter your size or shape, Untuck It shirts always fall at the perfect untucked length. With more than 50-plus fit combinations, Untucked shirts look great on tall, short, slim, and athletic guys of all ages. You can find your favorite Untucked style online or check out one of their 80 brick-and-mortar stores. Choose from styles like wrinkle-free button-downs, super soft flannels, outerwear, and more. With Untucked, your shirts will never look baggy, bulgy, too long, or too big again. And their website is so easy to use, they even have a whole page devoted to helping you find your fit. So whether you're shopping for the perfect holiday gift or just trying to craft a smart, relaxed style of your own, Untuck It is the way to go. Visit UntuckIt.com and use promo code BLUE for 20% off at checkout. That's U-N-T-U-C-K-I-T.com and promo code BLUE for 20% off. Our next question comes from Jaycon at JayConWI. Why is there so much blind faith with the Clippers as contenders, but so much doubt with the Bucks as contenders after what we've seen in the regular season so far? And is Kawhi enough to warrant that discrepancy? So let me tackle the first part first. The benefit of the doubt is more so given to the Clippers because Kawhi Leonard is a two-time NBA champion, two-time finals MVP, and the Clippers really haven't been at full strength ever this season, and they've straight rickrolled opponents when Kawhi and, and Paul George play together they have their issues they could use another center but now the fact that they've gotten Marcus Morris in there that really just adds another depth dynamic another body they could throw at bigger wings he's been shooting the hell out of the ball from three if he transitions into a a lower on ball volume role where he can subsist on those catch and shoot looks and continue to hit 46 percent on spot up threes they're going to be sitting pretty what I kind of disagree with is that they're re- and I'll explain why there might be some doubt in the Bucks first then. It's because we saw them kind of flame out later in the playoffs last year. Eric Bledsoe has not been good the past two postseasons. Everyone's going to talk about, is Chris Middleton a-, a real number two? I think that's an unfair question. I actually think that he's closer to a viable championship number two than not, and that's probably not talked about enough. I don't know if the Bucks have inoculated themselves against a similar decline when you look at what could happen to their half-court offense this postseason, but I do think that they've 
come close organically because I, I'm going to be of the mind that they should have paid the tax and, and kept Malcolm Brogdon, and, and that would be that, or that maybe they should have made a smaller move of the trade deadline with that Indiana pick. Could they have gotten in the Marcus Morris conversation, or was New York willing not to create the necessary roster spots since it would have effectively had to have been a three-for-one? Wh- whatever the case, I don't think we've talked enough about how Middleton is been closer to a top 25 player than a top 40 player closer to a top 25 player than a top 35 player this year. He might even be a top 25 player this year, and I'm not trying to be facetious. It's the fact that he's averaging essentially under 30 minutes a game, and so that's I'm not going to penalize him for the Bucks being so dominant. Some other things I look at, Eric Bledsoe's been better offensively than he has been um, over the past couple seasons. I don't know if that's reliable, but he's actually been scoring fairly well in the limited isolation opportunities he has. he's had. I think that's a huge plus. The other thing is that the Giannis at center lineups have been absolutely destroying opponents this year. And in years past, there have been some good returns, um, some bad returns. This time, though, it's, it's like a volume lineup. He's already set a career high for the number of possessions he's logged at center. And that was before the halfway mark of the season, comfortably before the halfway mark of the season. The fact that they've been so dominant in those minutes, and now you add Marvin Williams to that, to where it makes it easier for you to go small without really losing I guess size or, or girth, maybe you're, you know, there's still going to be issues there. Marvin Williams is 6'9". He's not, you know, a, a real center, but t- to have him and Giannis be interchangeable there, maybe you can throw him on a Pascal Siakam so you don't have to put um, a Tentacubo there. I don't know how well that works. I'm just saying it's more optionality. And so for the second part of this question, is Kawhi enough to warrant the discrepancy between the Clippers getting the benefit of the doubt and the Bucks not? It's absolutely not because the Bucks are on pace to win 71 games this year. They are heavy favorites to come out of the Eastern Conference, as they should be. And I think there's a a legitimate conversation to be had about should they be the overall championship favorites. As of right now, you know, I'm going to stick to my stubborn offseason pick of the Nuggets. I don't feel too great about it, but I'm I'm a man of principle, even when it means being wrong. And I will change my mind if we come to the playoffs and I don't think the Nuggets are going to beat a team in the series. I don't have confidence in this pick now. But I kind of think that the Bucs have a better chance of winning the title than the Lakers or even the Clippers right now. I lean towards that, but they all feel like they're on this three-team uh, even plane and that it's those three and then everyone else. And that's a hell of an accomplishment for the Bucks. It shouldn't be an insult, but I don't think it should be, oh, the Clippers are definitely better suited to win the title because they have Kawhi. You know what? Let's see Paul George stay healthy this year for an extended period of time. Let's see them shoot well from three again um, before we're ready to say this. So the Bucks have been fantastic, and they're, I don't know if there's an issue of them not being talked enough. I'm not going to get into the Giannis contract, future free agency stuff, blah, 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 blah. The Bucks are dominant. They are one of the three title favorites in my book, and they can be the absolute title favorite. If you want to say that, I won't push back on it. Our next question, interesting question. I appreciated this one from, from Nick. Uh, at NPinto628. I asked this last time as well. Way to go, Andy, for missing a question. Is Mo Bamba quietly good now? Plus 1.3 Raptor, a somewhat lackluster plus 0.49 PIPM, but a plus 2.40 defensive PIPM, both of which are big improvements over last year. His defensive field goal percentage on shots inside of six feet is 48.7, best among bigs from the 2018 draft class. Mo Bamba, I would say, is quietly solid now. Uh, if you look at the players who are holding opponents to under 50% shooting at the rim on at least four uh, challenged shots in that area per game, you get five names. JaVal McGee, Zach Collins, Avicii Zubac, and Brooke Lopez, plus Mo Bamba. 
that's pretty good company to be in. Uh, Zach Collins has only played in three games, so it's really only four players, Bamba, McGee, Zubats, and Lopez. Lopez is known as one of the premier rim protectors in the game. Ironically, remove Collins from the equation, and he has the lowest defensive field goal percentage in those situations. Not a perfect measurement, but let's look at if Bamba is actually impacting the shots that are being taken when he's on the court. The Magic's opponents are getting to the rim more frequently when he's on the floor. That could have a ton to do with the fact that he's playing just with the the second unit heavy combinations in general. Um, but when he's on the floor, opponents are shooting 6.8 percentage points worse at the rim than their season average. That's the 98th percentile, which is absolutely wild. Um, some of the other catch-all metrics are, missed, are, are mixed, though. If you look at luck-adjusted, Defensive real adjusted plus minus. He's in the top 100. He's 96. That's not super spectacular, but it's also in the top, you know, 80% of the league if we're going by the the full um, 500 players that qualified for it. So that's not terrible either. Where I worry about him is can he be more on offense? He's taking 72% of his shots at the rim or beyond the arc. He needs to hit all of those looks more consistently. I, I, is he going to be able to be a consistent roller to the basket when he's not particularly strong? It could be tough in uh, Orlando's system where they just don't have a ton of floor spacers around him. He doesn't shoot threes in a ton of volume. He's just not taking shots in general in a ton of volume. He's 33.3% from three for the season. However, he's at 54.5% from deep over his last eight games, under two attempts per game, but he's also not playing an exceptional amount of minutes. I'm here to say that Mo Bamba is an NBA player. I think that he right now can be considered a fringe starting center, but there could be concerns defensively if you're going up against stronger fives, and there needs to be more of an offensive contribution just consistently. I don't know if that's a matter of the Magic changing up his personnel, or maybe he looks better on another team, but the fact that he is can move so well on the defensive end overall, and that's already the impact is already showing up when he's you know he's not starting with this team. Uh, that's important because the Magic's bench isn't setting the world on fire. And so uh, kudos to him. And yes, that I guess that is an underrated storyline. Also just underrated in general is that the, Mag- the Magic have absolutely um, gotten to the point where maybe we don't need to worry about them missing the playoffs. Do you trust the Wizards? Um, they are one game in front of the Wizards in the loss column, but they have four more wins, 22 and 31 versus 18 and 32. Then there's the Bulls, Pistons, and Knicks. I guess Washington's their biggest threat, although the Knicks recently went on a winning streak, so that's something to note. Uh, The Magic have been just up and down. It seems like they put it together, but now as we're recording this, they've lost three in a row. That's something to monitor is can the Wizards catch them or will Detroit's not coming out of left field after trading Andre Drummond? I really don't think so. Uh, Can Chicago do it? They're dealing with so many injuries. The Knicks... You know, uh, the Leon Rose era, everybody, maybe, probably not. So it does feel like the Magic, even though the the record doesn't reflect it, even though their consistency overall doesn't reflect it, and they are dealing with injuries themselves, they've really sewn up a playoff spot uh, right now. That's how it looks to me. I'm going to make this our final question because the episode's already been a, a little too long for, for the type of pace that we're going for. It comes from Ryan at Ryan News Private. Thoughts on the Rockets' small ball lineup? Counter question, which one? Really just kidding. I'm, I'm an asshole. I know that. So if you look, Covington and Tucker have played 75 possessions together already with P.J. Tucker being the, the de facto center in those situations. In 75 possessions, Houston's net rating is plus 18.7. They have a defensive rating in the 99th percentile with an offensive rating in the 94th percentile. The things that they've done well 
during that stretch. It's just, I don't think it's going to hold because they've been getting killed on the glass overall in Tucker's minutes. I do think someone like Covington, a good team defender, takes too many risks, but he doesn't necessarily foul a ton when he's doing those. And so that will help Houston keep their fouls under control when they're going small, which is tough when, which is actually a good thing. It's tough, I should say, because you're going against these just bigger, brutal players that can really force you into some awkward situations. And maybe he helps there. I don't think he's going to help their rebounding to the extent where they have a defensive rebounding rate in the 90th percentile. Such a small sample. So I'm going to say this about the overarching discussion. I don't know if it could work. And having a Marvin Williams type on their team feels like it, it would have been great just to have that not super tall body, but bigger body that you can say, well, he would normally be a small ball five where, where Tucker wouldn't. That certainly helps, but we'll just have to see. I think it will pay off in the regular season, and I respect them leaning into it if that's how they want to play. You can quibble over whether they should have treated Rocco as the best player in a Clint Capella deal to the extent that they gave up a first-round pick in that trade while ducking the tax as well, and then they were able to use Jordan Bell and a second-round pick swap to get Bruno uh, Caboclo. We'll have to see uh, when he's healthy, if if he's going to get some small ball five minutes for them. There's a lot to digest there, but I respect what Daryl Morey head coach Mike D'Antoni, just the Rockets organization minus Tillman Fertitta's obsession with ducking attacks, are, are doing. Because if, if this is how you want to play, do it. And they kind of have to play this way. They're not so much re-jiggering the roster um, around James Harden as they are catering to Russell Westbrook. They don't believe they can have two non-shooters on the floor. And with Capella and Westbrook, they have two non-shooters. And so Westbrook with small balls is going to have more open lanes to the basket. You just watch a game hit pause and just look at at the spacing on this. There's no one in the paint because they're going to have four shooters on the court at all times around Russell Westbrook, and you can't give him too much room because he still has that speed to to get by you. And so I really like what what the Rockets have done. We'll see if it works in due time. That's going to do it for this episode. We'll make the closings short and sweet. Uh, thank you all for listening. We hope you're enjoying these mailbags pods as, as much as we're enjoying doing them. Follow Hardwood Knox on Twitter. Rate, review, subscribe on iTunes, all that great stuff. Until next time, I'm going to leave you with a shout out to Kyle Anderson and absolutely nobody else. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.